My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Christ is in our midst. May the Lord be in my heart and on my lips that I may fitly and worthily proclaim the Holy Gospel in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. My sermon this morning is simply titled, The Temptation of Jesus. We heard read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. When I was eight years old, I think I was eight, my family went on a work vacation trip uh, to Europe. My dad, part of his ministry was creating uh, catechetical or, or instructional material for uh, churches in you know, the, the Pentecostal charismatic traditions that he would, he would bring and he would preach and he would um, um, have prayer services, but then he would also have instructional time in the faith. And... Um, we were fortunate enough to be invited, well he was, for, he was fortunate enough to be invited uh, to Europe and so when I was very young we all flew over, uh, crammed in a little car and drove through Europe after he did some meetings uh, in, in Holland and it was uh, an interesting trip. Um, we started off in Holland in the city of Den Haag and I'll never forget walking down the street with my parents because I don't remember seeing anything because my mom did this as we walked down the street. Basically like the whole time <laughs> we were there. Except when we went to go see some of the touristy stuff. But most of the time I was spent looking down on the ground like this holding my mom's hand or having her uh, put her hand over my eyes like that as we, as we walked down the street. Because of, let's shall we say, signs with uh, risque content that not really appropriate for children. And in some ways my walk down that street of, of Den Haag is, is a metaphor I think for how we navigate our modern culture. Temptations of wildly different varieties, they proliferate at an ever increasing rate demanding our time and our attention, trying to latch onto our souls by appealing to what St. Paul would call the passions of the flesh. Which is why it's so important for us to use this season of Lent to reorient our hearts to the Lord, to fast, to abstain, and to pray. And in today's reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke, we see Jesus being confronted by the chief tempter himself and how Jesus responded and its example for us. So the first place, well the first way that the devil tries to tempt Jesus is through the physical. Through the physical. The temptation here in the physical is a reference to doing something that will satisfy the physical or sensual desire. And, and this is the first, but possibly maybe the lowest level of temptation if we could place them in a hierarchy. But it's often the most effective one. And Jesus is hit by the devil in this area by the devil appealing to Jesus' hunger for food. Right, so remember last week we talked about Moses going up the mountain of transfiguration. We talked about he was up there, he didn't eat for 40 days. We see something similar happening here with Jesus. He has just been baptized in the Jordan River and then the Spirit has led him into the wilderness and he has been fasting for 40 days. And then that's when the devil strikes 
Hey, you're God's son, aren't you? You're hungry, aren't you? You see these rocks? Why don't you just, you know, you're God's son. Just change those rocks to bread and then have something to eat. And then you won't be hungry anymore. That sounds kind of, kind of benign, right? It doesn't really sound like a serious thing. Like, yeah, what is the big deal about Jesus using his power to transform stones into, into bread? And I think for us, too, brothers and sisters, like Jesus' encounter at the Jordan River, sometimes we have encounters with God. And then oftentimes after those encounters, we are also assaulted by the evil one. And, and there's nothing wrong with being hungry and then eating some bread to fill uh, the hunger. The, the devil, he's kind of clever to a degree. And he uses things that might be good in order to try and draw us away. Pleasure, joy, desire for love. And he's trying to get Jesus here to use his power for his own gratification. That's the test here, right? Make these stones into bread. The devil is saying, use the power that you have to satisfy your own fleshly needs. Because remember, like I told the, the, the confirmants downstairs, Jesus is fully divine, but he's also fully human. But Jesus isn't here to gratify his own flesh, his own physical desires. Jesus is here to offer his flesh to fashion bread for the world, not to fashion bread for himself. As Jesus says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's how we're hit as well, right? We're hit right in the area that we might be feeling the weakest in at the time. And then the tempter, his minions, or our own fallen minds attempt to turn our will towards something that might look like it will satisfy us, but will in fact lead to increased darkness. But the only thing that can satisfy or satiate our souls is the bread from heaven. Is the bread from heaven. And so what we learn from this first temptation is that Jesus satisfies the deepest longing of our souls. Let's talk about materialism a little bit. The devil takes Jesus up the mountain and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world, it says, in a moment in time, and offers to give all of it to Jesus under one condition. If you fall on your knees and worship me, you fall on your knees and worship me. Well, he says, if you worship me, it will all be yours. He doesn't just show Jesus the kingdoms of the earth. He shows Jesus, it says here, their glory. Their glory. And offers Jesus authority over those kingdoms. Everything a person could ask for. Right there. Right in the palm of your hand. All Jesus has to do is worship the devil. And this is kind of carried on through into our own culture. You know, you have the, the, the stories, you know, of the, of the blues guitarist, right? Who, who sells his soul to the devil to uh, get the ability to be the, the best blues guitarist uh, in the world. I remember years ago, uh, the car company BMW made uh, a short film. Uh, one of them was a bunch of short films. And one of them was called, I think, Chase the Devil. And it was uh, James Brown, you know. He was racing against the devil in a, in a sports car with, you know, with a really good driver driving him. You know, because if he could beat the devil in 
in this race, he could uh, get his youth back. And, and you know, at the end of the race, he does. He beats the devil because they're in a BMW. And he gets young again, and he dances away. But it doesn't quite work that way. Jesus, the things that the, the devil says, I will give you if you worship me. This is all something that Jesus has actually come to accomplish through his passion. And that's all offered to him right there on a silver platter. See, the devil knows who Jesus is, but doesn't quite actually know what he's there to do. What he's been incarnate for. Some of the theologians of the early church, like Origen, speculated that the devil here knows Jesus is a son of God. Because in the Old Testament sense, sons of God were a reference to a heavenly being in general. Uh, but he doesn't know that Jesus is the son of God. Well, it's fun to speculate, but I think he might be wrong there. But it's fun to think about. And then Origen thinks that this temptation is sort of there. The devil's trying to get Jesus to sort of tip his hand to show his cards, as it were. But when we look at this narrative, this temptation narrative, particularly this part, if you bow down and worship me, what we have to remember is that the devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. By his very nature, he's a liar. Jesus says in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so even though the devil says, this has been delivered to me, the kingdoms and the authority of this world, right? even though the scriptures refer to Satan as the prince of the power of the air, The scriptures continually remind us who the earth belongs to. And I'll give you one guess who the earth actually belongs to. It's not a hard one. It's God. It's God. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So not just the world belongs to the Lord. Everyone that's in it belongs to the Lord. The kingdoms of this world belong to the Lord. The psalm says the, the hand of the king, or the, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. And he turns it whatever way he wills. So even though Satan has been given some authority in this world to move and operate in this world, ultimately, at the end of the day, the world is still God's. And the devil has no authority to give what belongs to God to God. Because that's who Jesus is. God in human flesh. And all of this happens on a mountain as some sort of reverse, you know, bizarro theophany. Instead of seeing God on the mountain, Jesus is confronted by evil on the mountain, trying to tempt him to evil. But here's the thing. Jesus was on the mountain when Moses was on the mountain. And Jesus is God the Word. And what the world offers cannot compare with the glory he had with the Father from the beginning. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we are hit by the glitz and the glamour of the kingdoms of this world as well. And that pull is very, very strong. We are told, I mean, I can't remember how many 
ads I saw last night as my wife and I caught up on Chopped, right? Because that's very spiritual, what we do. We watch Chopped sometimes. And I saw ad after ad after ad after ad for invest in this company. Oh, no, use this investing tool. You can do it via an app. Well, don't invest with that app. Use our app. You need to save all of your money this way and this way and this way and this way. And then, you know, the drug commercials as well. So here's the thing. It is good to save. And we should save and be responsible with our money, okay? My point is that many people get so caught up in trying to accumulate things, money, possessions, that they lose sight, that ultimately at the end of the day, when you die, you can't take any of it with you. And you might be able to leave it to your kids, and you probably should if you're able to. But right, if you do, they might even fight over it. They might actually squander what you save for them over fighting amongst themselves who gets more of it than the other. We can't take it with us. But we, sh we shape our lives around trying to accumulate all of this stuff. Things and places have a powerful draw over, over us. If I could just save up enough, I can go here. I can do this. All of this can be yours for the low price of your soul. Because that's where this temptation leads. The acquisition of things we don't need at the expense of loving God and our neighbor. And if God arrays the lilies of the field in beauty, he will provide us what we need. And ultimately, Satan will have us chasing after something we can never quite grab a hold of. I remember in a different church I used to work for many years ago, there was a, a very unfortunate young man who was chasing after money. And he would spend money on lottery tickets. Because he believed that God told him that it was his will for this young man to win the lottery. And sitting with him, trying to talk with him through it a little bit, I'm like, are you sure about that? Are you sure that was God that told you? Because it might not be. And I don't know how much money he spent buying lottery tickets thinking that God was going to help him to win the lottery. Because if he did, then he would use all of the money for God. First of all, he, God didn't tell him he was going to win the lottery because he never did. Second of all, even if he had won the lottery, he would not have taken that money and used it for the kingdom of God. He would have used it for himself. Because that's what many of us would do. Because that's the kind of hold on us materialism has. As St. John Chrysostom reminds us, seek then the things to come and thou wilt receive the things present also. So what we learn from this temptation is that this world and everything in it cannot compare with the glory that is ours in the age to come. The glory of this present world, all of the glitz and the glamour cannot hold a candle to our destiny in the kingdom of God's dear son. The last temptation, we see Satan casting doubt. And Satan takes Jesus to the temple mountain and then tells him to go ahead and jump. If all of your friends told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? Satan says, jump. Because if you do, the angels aren't going to allow you to fall. You're the son of God. 
And the devil tries to be even trickier here because he does something very, very pernicious. He quotes scripture at Jesus, the gall. To quote scripture at Jesus? But he does. He, he quotes at Jesus, Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's okay, Jesus. Jump off the top of the temple. If you're the son of God, nothing bad is going to be able to happen to you. The angels are going to just pick you up and carry you away. And Jesus actually even says... Like, I could get off the cross if I wanted to. I could call legions of angels to get me out of here. Right? The devil can quote scripture. And he does something here. He tries to set up the word of God, the scriptures, against the word of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one that scripture testifies of. And this is very similar, brothers and sisters, to the devil's temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What does he say to Eve and Adam and Eve? Do you remember? When they're standing there, he said, Did God really say not to eat that? Did God really say not to do that? I don't think so. What do you think? And Adam and Eve say, I don't know. Well, maybe God didn't say. Maybe he didn't mean what he said. And they pluck the fruit and they eat. This time, instead of asking, did God really say, he actually quotes something God has said through the scriptures and twists it. The presumption here being that Jesus will be tempted to use this opportunity to show his power off to everyone while bypassing the long, slow walk that will lead inexorably towards the cross. But what the devil does not know is that Jesus has the power to give up his life and to take it up again. He says as much in John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And Jesus says to the devil's testing here. He responds to him from a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes scripture back at the one who's twisting and misquoting scripture at him. And the devil leaves, it says, until a more opportune time. Because this is not the only time Jesus is going to be confronted. And nowadays, one of the tools of the enemy is to weaponize doubt. To weaponize doubt by asking the question, did God really say? Did God really mean what he said? And one of the ways this chiefly shows up is by taking the words of Jesus. This is a classic one, right? Somebody will say, well, St. Paul says this in Romans. And then somebody will say, yeah, but Jesus says this in Matthew. So when we take the words of Jesus in Matthew and we take maybe what Paul said, something harsh in Romans or Corinthians or Galatians, that's not, like when Paul says in Galatians that these guys who are so much into the Jewish law should emasculate themselves, that's not very Christ-like because Jesus would never say anything like that. Trying to take Paul and Jesus 
and set them at odds with each other. As if St. Paul didn't know Jesus. As if St. Paul didn't learn from the risen Christ. As if St. Paul didn't know the scriptures, right? This is a classic way of trying to set the Bible against himself. There's this belief that Jesus is some sort of modern, egalitarian, inclusive hippie doing his best to try and create safe spaces, safe spaces and ethics for everyone. And Paul comes along and then takes this and twists it and you know, turns it into patriarchy and hierarchy and all sorts of whatever archies you want to add to it, right? So now we have to do this hard work of recovering what Jesus really meant away from the mean old grumpy killjoy Paul. Don't get me wrong, brothers and sisters. There will be times in our lives where we have doubt. Where we have serious doubt. Where we doubt God. Where we doubt his word. And we doubt our faith. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to ask questions. Many people were brought up in traditions that said, don't ask questions. Because they saw what happened when people did ask questions. They may have left the faith. But oftentimes those people who asked questions left the faith because when they came to them and said, I have questions, they said, don't ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. I'll take that. God can handle our questions. God can handle our doubts. Right? Sometimes when we don't know what to pray or we don't know what to confess or we don't know what to hold on to, sometimes it's all we can do to just stumble and stand in our pew with our bulletin in our hand. And I don't know what I believe, but I'm going to stand and I'm going to confess the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or our Trinity Sunday, the Athanasian Creed. I'm going to confess these things because I need these things to help carry me right now because my faith is weak. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to go through times of doubt. And for those of us in the church, we need to walk with people through seasons of doubt. It's part of the Christian life and all patience and grace and love must be extended to those in that space. Because God can handle doubt. And our faith goes much further back and goes much deeper than the mile-long, inch-deep theology of much of modern Christianity. So we shouldn't be scared when we have doubts or when people have doubts. But we have to be careful. Because we can eventually get to a place where so much of everything is in doubt that we never go beyond doubting. Where we never go beyond gazing down at our navel, wondering to ourselves, did God actually mean when he said? Are the scriptures actually reliable? Can we trust the New Testament and what it says about Jesus? Yes, we can. Right? Did God really say? Yes, he did. And sometimes a, lot, a large portion of our Christian life is, uh, is us catching up with <laughs> right? Or slowly being able to turn into the direction that God is calling us to, that, that God is asking us to accept. Because our faith is something that we have received. It's not something that we just made up or somebody just made up a while back. 
It is a living tradition handed over to us through the apostles, through their successors, and through those who have kept the faith and passed it on and handed it on through the centuries. And so we can learn from this final temptation that when the, doubter, when the tempter casts doubt by twisting the word of God, respond with the word of God. When the tempter says, cast yourself off from the temple mountain, the angels will bury you up unless you cast your foot against the stone. Jesus responds with, the scripture says, do not put your Lord to the test. Don't put your Lord to the test. And when we are confronted with our own temptations, with our own seasons of doubt, when the devil says, did God really say that? We can say, yes, he did. And I'm trying my best to understand it. I'm trying my best to live this out. And I'm trying my best to conform my life to the word of God. And it's not going to come instant. Again, this is why Lent is so helpful. This is why Lent is so important. Because we get 40 days of this. And we're on our first Sunday. Everyone says, hooray. <laughs> As St. John Chrysostom reminds us, for we were not born to this end that we should eat and drink and be clothed, but that we might please God and attain to the good things to come. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have a few minutes, I'd ask you to go to gofundme.com slash Zion's Stone Church Repair Fund. We have some significant repair work that we need to do on our bell tower as well as some repair work due to a recent lightning strike. Anything you'd be able to help us out with, we would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of me or you have any questions about what you've heard, feel free to reach out at our Facebook page, Zionstone UCC, or you can check us out on our website, ZionstoneUCC.com. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.